0: Hi, welcome to West Edmonton Christian Assembly, and thank you for tuning into our weekly sermon podcast. Well, as you can see from the uh, the little video bumper there, we're just launching into a brand new series here this morning that we are calling um, Q and A, and so this is actually kind of a sequel to last summer. Because last summer we put together a series based on a compilation of questions that were submitted by you, the congregation. Questions and or topics on things that uh, you would like answered or topics that you would love to hear preached on from this podium. And so we're adding a sequel to it. It went over really well last year and we thought we should try and answer maybe a few more of the questions. Uh, Between last year and this year, I think there were over a hundred different questions and or topics that were submitted. And quite frankly, many of them were excellent and notably challenging. And in fact, some of the topics and or questions really are difficult to cover in one message. And so uh, maybe this summer we'll, we'll take a message or two or maybe even three, who knows, on a particular question or, or, or subject. Uh, we want to get to as many as we can, but uh, just let you know, it's tough to respectfully and rightfully try and do a good job of answering some of these questions or topics uh, based on, um, on the ones that have been submitted. So we're going to attempt to do that once again. And uh, I'm going to be preaching five of the messages. So I'll be dealing with three or four or five different uh, questions or topics, depending on how much I spread it out. Adam is going to do three. Now, I don't fully know which ones I'm going to do yet. But Adam's away, so I chose to assign his to him uh, while he's away. So uh, let's have a look at them. There's the first one. That uh, we'll see if he can answer. Uh, what's the second one? Uh, that should be 35 minutes. Uh, explaining the Trinity in 35 minutes. And th- that that was actually submitted as a question. So um, um, thank you, Kevin Ton, for that. I appreciate it. Um, I don't know the answer to it, but <laughs> anyway. Um, that last one was truly a, a question, So, uh, and we're laughing, but maybe it's a serious question. I don't know uh, how to keep your wife happy, but um, and maybe wives are asking the same thing. How do you keep your husband happy? So, uh, Anyway, so to begin the series, I've chosen a question that really is an excellent question, and quite frankly, it's one that's been asked uh, down through the years. I would be shocked if if you've never been asked the question, but let's have a look at it. Why are there so many denominations? I would venture to guess that likely you have been asked this question by those who are maybe non-religious or semi-religious or outside the church, but maybe you've asked this very same question this morning and you're here, you're you're wondering why are there so many uh, different denominations? Now, I have to make an initial assumption with the question, and I want to explain it to you. First of all, I'm assuming that the question is actually directed at the number of denominations that are within or under the banner of that which we would call, quote-unquote, Christian. So I'm not looking at it uh, from the viewpoint of world religions, but just the sheer volume of denominations Uh, that exists under that which we would call, and I say quote-unquote, because maybe it's loose, uh, Christian. According to the World Christian Encyclopedia, a reference work published by Oxford University Press, more than 33,000 denominations exist worldwide. Now, before you gasp and possibly pass out for the rest of the message, I do want to filter that a little bit for you. And just to let you know that some of what they would include under that which is quote-unquote Christian is likely a little bit inaccurate in terms of the way likely many of us as evangelicals would define that which is Christian. For example, they would include Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, Masons, Christadelphians, Unitarians, Christian Scientology, Oneness Pentecostals, Hidden Buddhist Believers in Christ... And maybe some other smaller movements or, or what some would even consider maybe to be cults. So you have to take that number over 33,000 and you really kind of have to filter it through. But having said that, the sheer volume of denominations that would rest under the banner of Christianity, quite frankly, it's staggering, isn't it? And here's how they categorize these numbers of denominations from a macro view. So let's have a look at it for a moment. Uh, Maybe we'll just look at the statement. Sorry, we can go back. That's my fault, Paul. World Christianity consists of six major ecclesiastical cultural blocks. So this is what they call blocks divided into 300 major ecclesiastical traditions composed of over 33,000 distinct denominations in 238 countries. And then they break it down into these uh, categories. So we'll take a look at those now for a moment. So first of all, they, they, they list off uh, 22,000 of them are what they would call independent denominations. Protestant denominations, well, they would say 9,000. So marginal denominations, 1,600, Orthodox, 781, Catholics, 242, Anglicans, 168. So that's over 33,000 denominations, according to, again, the World Christian Encyclopedia. Now, regardless of how many of these you might filter out and say, well, I don't know if I would call that Christian. You'd still be left with a, a massive amount, a massive number of denominations. And as I was thinking about this, and it's not all bad. We'll come back to that in a moment. But really, how do you go from 120 followers of Jesus in an upper room defined this way? Let's have a look at it from Acts 2. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. So they started in a a, 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 a a one place, and they were unified and to a place where you have thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of denominations under the banner of quote unquote Christianity. And then when you frame that within the context of something that Jesus prayed in the last few days or weeks of his life in John seventeen, verse twenty, through 23a, we read these words. It's really quite unsettling in a sense uh, when you compare it to this. Jesus said, I'm praying not only for those, for these disciples, th- those who were his immediate followers, but I also pray for all who will ever believe in me through the message of his original disciples. I pray that they will be one just as you and I are one. As you were in me, Father, and I am in you. And may they be in us so that the world will believe you sent me. I have given them the the glory that you gave me so that they may be one as we are one. And then he prays this. I am in them and you are in me. May they experience such perfect unity that the world may know that you sent me. A very interesting text. Jesus said, I, I, I pray that they, they will be in such unity, my followers, not only my immediate followers, but those who will believe in me in the future, that this will be a testimony that you have sent me into the world. That's pretty interesting. So as we look at the state of the worldwide Christian church, is it characterized by unity or disunity or maybe a little bit of both? Ephesians chapter 4, verses 3 through 6. Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the Spirit. Binding yourselves together with peace. For there is one body, there's one Spirit, just as you've been called to one glorious hope for the future. There's one Lord, there's one faith, there's one baptism, there's one God. So you get these words, unit, united, together, one, 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 one. Perhaps the Christian church has lost a little traction as it relates to its unity, its togetherness, its solidarity, its oneness. Jesus said this to Peter. Now I say to you that you are Peter, which means rock. And upon this rock I will build my church and all the powers of hell will not conquer it. So it might be a little disconcerting. That we would see this sheer volume, whatever the number is, even if it's not 33,000, maybe it's less. But. but at the same time, I want to make it clear that I'm not suggesting that the formation of denominations is the totality of disunity. Because I do not think that that is true. In fact, we'll discover in a moment that sometimes, as a result of diversity having a myriad of denominations can be okay. So the point of the message is not to say it's all bad that we have so many. It might not be all good that we have that many, but the the point of the message is to try and answer the question, why are there so many? It's important to note that that I think you can have a semblance of unity within the worldwide church of Jesus Christ, while at the same time having some measure of diversity within these smaller units. In fact, that's a very definition of the word denomination. If you take the definition of denomination, it refers quite often to finance, and we could define it this way, a value or size of a series of values or sizes, the value of a particular coin or bills in 20 and 50, or other what we would call denominations. So you see, friend, church denominations can be a little bit like money. They, they, they come in different bill sizes or notes, but they can all be equally part of what we would call currency. So maybe we ought to see some of our denominations as different denominations in the currency of the worldwide Church of Christ. I think that might be a good way to see it. And I think this is affirmed in 1 Peter chapter 2. We'll take a look at that, and then we'll jump into the reasons. The author says, come to Jesus Christ. He is the living stone that people have rejected, which God has chosen and highly honored. And now you, he's speaking to Christians. You are living stones that are being used to build what really is a worldwide sanctuary, a spiritual house. So we're all living stones throughout the world, those who profess to believe in Jesus Christ And together we are the stones that comprise the building of this worldwide sanctuary. So you can have unity with diversity. And I think you ought to know and ought to realize that there is a difference between unification and unity. So you can take 10 chickens, tie their feet together, throw them over a clothesline and you have unification. But it's probably not unity. So we need to recognize there's a difference between being unified in Christ globally and yet having some diversification within that. But we're going to take a look at five reasons. We might call them the five D's of denominationalism. And I'm not suggesting these are the only five. But they all start with the letter D. They're very easy to remember. They're, they're, they're one word uh, statements. And better stated, five reasons uh, why there are so many denominations. And uh, I I want us to think about this. These are, uh, the message is not intended to explain the origin of every denomination. That would take weeks and weeks and people much more educated than I. But there would be history, there would be specificity to every single Formation of a denomination. And you could probably drill down and find out how did that start? When did it start? Why did it start? That's not the point of the message. We want to look at, at this from 35,000 feet and sort of uh, tease out some thoughts on, on why we have so many. So let's take a look at them. The first reason why we have so many denominations it's the most obvious one, doctrine. Doctrine, the first and likely most dominant reason We have so many denominations under the banner of Christianity is because churches and or people cannot agree on the interpretation of Scripture. That's the first reason. Now, I think it's safe to say that most evangelical churches and movements would agree on some of the most foundational aspects of doctrine. Things like there is a God, man is a sinner, Jesus is the son of God. He's the one and only mediator between Father God and humankind. He died on the cross for the forgiveness of human sin to reconcile those who were separated from God to him. We are now legally declared not guilty in the eyes of God because we have the righteousness of Christ uh, um, uh, given to us, okay, imputed to us. So, most evangelical movements would agree on those level one doctrinal convictions. But, ladies and gentlemen, beyond that, there can be a vast array of beliefs and opinions as it relates to the ethereal intent of a scriptural passage. And by the way, this is not, I do not believe that this is a reflection of God who's totally confused. He can't make up his mind what a passage means. The disagreements around the doctrinal issues, I think, come as a result of a few different things. This is not an exhaustive list, but think about some of these things. Let's just look at a few of them. What about human limitations? So quite frankly, those of us living in finite bodies as we do, those of us who are human, which would be most of us here this morning, the inability to perfectly understand a divine text with our human faculties, even with the indwelling presence of the Spirit of Christ, we have limitations. So I think we can say within those limitations, people agree to disagree. Great scholars Intelligent people say, I see it differently. What about minimal or at best questionable study? What we might call poor hermeneutics, which is the science of biblical interpretation. So you've got somebody opening up the Bible, say, well, this is what I, is what I think it means. Somebody else opens, no, I don't agree with that. I, I think it means this. Somebody else says, no, well, no, no, this is what it means. And so over time, because of that, you likely get fractures, you get splinters, you get offshoots, you get the formation of denominations. What about a scriptural bias? Okay, so unwilling to see and accept the text for what it's really saying, ultimately, because it threatens one's perceived view of the passage. I, no, I, I don't want to believe that, Pastor. I've never been taught that. I, I'm not open to that. So we, we sometimes we get stuck and we have these preconceived views of what it has to mean and it can't mean anything else. What about societal influences? Altering the integrity of Scripture to comply with acceptable cultural norms. Pastor, it's 2017. We can't stick with that doctrine. We've got to change it. It's got to fit the movements and the motions. And... The evolution of society. And sometimes we see that. And denominations split. And there are others are formed because they no longer want to conform to conservative theology. So what about human bias? Altering the integrity of scripture for personal advantage or gain. So I believe all these scriptures are there because it's going to make me wealthy. God wants me to be wealthy. Okay. Somebody else says, no, I, I don't think that's what it's saying. And so you get these denominations forming based on a sense of personal advantage or gain. What about cultural influences? Different cultures around the world viewing the text and forming the doctrine through the lens of their culture. We just interviewed a missionary couple from Sri Lanka. Sri, Sri Sri Lanka is probably a little different culture than Edmonton. Now, I'm not saying scripture doesn't transcend culture and time and generations and ultimately in its purest sense, I believe it does. But contextualization is a real big discussion now about culture. So I think you throw all of these things together and probably some other things and you can see it's complicated. And you throw in these influences and sometimes out of it denominations form. I don't think it's enough for all Christians to have a, the same copy of the Bible. In fact, that doesn't always happen either. because Some have the Apocrypha. There's extra books in the Old Testament. And, and this is a challenge for the Christian church. In the pillar of fire, a pillar of truth, these words were written. I think this is interesting. The Bible alone theory simply does not work in practice. Historical experience disproves it. Each year, we see additional splintering among Bible believing religions. Today, there are tens of thousands of competing denominations, each insisting that its interpretation of the Bible is the correct one. The resulting divisions have caused untold confusion among millions of sincere but misled Christians. That's a very honest statement. It's not meant to be negative or depressing. But simply saying, well, we should just go by the Bible, Pastor. Well, it's not that simple. So I think you have to realize that... So when somebody says, oh, there's so many denominations. Well, yeah, there are. Because it's not that simple. So something to think about. But there were, in the first century church too, there were arguments, vehement discussions, and differences of opinion on, quite frankly, some doctrinal issues. Let's look at Acts 15 for a moment. Very interesting little verse. While Paul and Barnabas were at Antioch of Syria, some men from Judea arrived and began to teach the believers. Unless you are circumcised, as required by the law of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, I don't know who had the ministry of checking, but ladies and gentlemen, um, (laughs) praise God, this was not enshrined in doctrine. But look at the next Line, Paul and Barnabas disagreed with them, arguing vehemently. I'm so thankful people who were really close to Jesus argued vehemently. So not much has changed. People argue vehemently today over different things. But I can assure you, every single Gentile man sitting here this morning is standing up and calling them blessed. (laughs) That's one thing I'm sure of. So I think we can look at that text. Why is that story in the Bible? I think it's God's way of saying, you know what? It's never going to be fully figured out. There are going to be some denominations that start as a result of doctrinal discussions. So what can we learn from this? Here's the life truth. Doctrinal disagreements lead to denominational developments. Well, number two, what's the second reason? It's closely related, but it's a little bit different. What about division? Sometimes there's division and denominations launch because of division. And it's not always over doctrine. Maybe it could be over preferences, culture, personality, all kinds of different things. Territorialism, fleshly contributions, who knows? Sometimes it's division around leadership. Congregants wanting to follow a different leader now. We saw that in 1 Corinthians, didn't we? Chapter 1, verses 10 through 13. Let's have a look at that for just a moment. It's an interesting text. Paul says, I appeal to you, dear brothers and sisters, by the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ to live in harmony with each other. Let there be no divisions in the church. Rather be of one mind, united in thought and purpose. For some members of Chloe's household have told me about your quarrels, my dear brothers and sisters. Some of you are saying, I'm a follower of Paul. Some of you are saying, I follow Apollos. Some of you say, I follow Peter. Or I follow Christ. Well, if it's me, I'm I'm picking the last one. But anyway, has Christ been divided into factions? Division. So why are there over 33,000 denominations? Or whatever the title is, the, the number? Maybe it's division. Sometimes people can't get along. Life truth, division leads to denominational developments. James 4.1, what, what is causing the quarrels and fights among you? Don't they come from your evil desires at war within you? Now, am I saying that God can't use denominations that emanate out of strife or conflict or division? I don't think that's true. You think of Paul and was it Barnabas. I've lost my train of thought but there was a there was a big argument over over uh, John Mark uh, getting homesick and leaving the first Paul's first missionary journey and then and then uh, John Mark wanting to go on to the second one but but not being allowed to because they thought that that he was too soft and he'd run home again and there's a big argument over it and and there was a there was a splitting of the ways and God, God used both of those movements in the future. So even though sometimes these denominational launches and these splinters and these offshoots are are not always for honorable reasons, I'm not suggesting for a moment that God can't use them. And God uh, works in interesting ways over these different kinds of things. And ultimately, he has his highest purposes in sight. So number three, what about diversity? I think this can maybe be positive. One of the reasons that we have many different denominations is because we have many different cultures. we got different personalities, preferences within the worldwide church of Jesus Christ. Quite honestly, different denominations can provide different opportunities. A different way of doing church, a different flavor, different taste. Ultimately, we should be united under Christ. But that doesn't mean that we can't have some different denominations of the same currency. Now, I came across an article this week that uh, uh, spoke about this, and there was a little section in it that I thought, this is really good, and I, I'm just going to clip this out and read it because I thought it was, was, was well-written, and it touches on this. So it's by Norton Herbst. Let's take a look at it. He writes, Episcopal, Lutheran, Methodist, Presbyterian, Baptist, but all Christian? Why are there so many denominations? One reason for the existence of so many denominations is disparity in personality, passions, and talents. Consider individuals for a moment. Some people connect with God best through the exercise of their minds or while in nature. Others experience spirituality through creative or artistic expression. Still others feel a sacred or divine connection when they serve others or they help those who are hurting. While all of these are admirable and valid means to connect with God... It's no surprise that different churches and even whole denominations embody these distinctive personalities that have emerged. Another reason relates to the role of tradition. Some people appreciate the structure and heritage of worshiping God according to traditions passed down over many centuries. Thus, they might be more comfortable in the Eastern Orthodox, Roman Catholic, Episcopal Episcopal or Lutheran churches. No, he's not, he's not saying that every single thing that's ever done in any of these churches is perfectly Christian or, or perfectly doctrinally right. That's not his point. His point is that there's a gravitation to this diversity. Others, however, prefer to explore new and different ways of worshiping God, particularly uh, or practicing their faith they might feel boxed in by rituals or traditions. Culture plays a critical role as well. People from different cultures practice their faith in distinctive ways. It should not surprise us if church churches in middle a middle-class English town are extremely different from those in a war-torn, poverty-stricken village in Africa. And then he concludes with this. Consequently, churches and whole denominations will vary greatly depending on the geographical location and cultural values of people themselves. I think it's well-written. It's realistic. Um, I, I think we see... The essence of this or the spirit of this in scripture as well. The apostle Paul wrote these words now referring to a local congregation and spiritual gifts. But I think we can look at these things a little wider than that. The human body has many parts, but the many parts make up one whole body. So, so it is with the body of Christ. Some of us are Jews, some are Gentiles, some are slaves, some are free. But we've all been baptized into one body by one spirit. And we all share the same spirit. So then he goes down a little bit later, starting in verse 18. He says, but our bodies have many parts, and God has put each part just where he wants it. How strange a body would be if it only had one part. Yes, there are many parts, but only one body. The eye can never say to the hand, I don't need you. The head can't say to the feet, I don't need you. So verse 19, how strange it would be if, if the body only had one part. Yes, there are many parts but One body, and I, I wonder at times. Wonder, I don't know this for sure because I can't, you know, I, I can't have a cup of coffee with God right here and ask him specifically, was this your intent? But I wonder if, if sometimes, the mult, multitude of denominations is is a, is a macro expression at times of 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 the one body of Christ, but the different parts. I know we often refer to this in a local church, but maybe it's worldwide as well it's an interesting thought isn't it so maybe we need to respect that diversity and see it as a reason for denominational uh, launches the fourth one uh, I would call distinction I'll go over the last two quite quickly because they're they're slightly repetitive but a little bit different as well so distinction this would be uh, denominations forming as a result of a particular focus or something that they feel is of particular uh, importance in Scripture. Now, we know all Scripture is God-breathed and, and, and important, but it seems that there's, there's denominations that have a little stronger focus on a particular dimension of Scripture. So, as an example, like, like the Catholic denominations would traditionally have a focus on the Eucharist or on oral church traditions. You look at Baptist denominations, so and that's where they get their name from, Baptist Traditionally, they had a strong focus on water baptism. What about a Methodist denominations? They were given their name because they had structure and methods for assembling the church and methods for discipling people. So very structured. What about Pentecostal denominations? Well, you get that name from, from Acts 2, the, uh, the outpouring of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. So, so there's traditionally a focus on the person wearing the Holy Spirit. You take a Salvation Army denominations, they would traditionally focus on the social gospel, helping the poor and downtrodden. Now, I am not saying that this should come while neglecting all other dimensions of scripture. I think every local church, every denomination should be balanced and should have some focus, but there are distinctives. There are more notable focuses in different denominations. Maybe this is okay. This might be okay. As long as the distinctive in any denomination, doesn't matter which one you pick, as long as that distinctive has a good scriptural basis and it's not a violation of scripture or a twisting of scripture to uphold some ongoing tradition that's just handed down from decade to decade. And Jesus warned against this. He said, making the word of God of no effect through your tradition which you have handed down and many such things you do. So I think all denominations and all churches have to be careful that what's handed down and the distinctives that they have that they don't eclipse a really good view of the text. And number five, as we look to wrap up here, we'll close real quickly here. The fifth and final one I would say is deception. Now that's an interesting one. Sometimes denominations are formed either because the denomination that's coming out says look you know you're deceived here some of your practices are corrupt they're they're depraved and some of your views on things and we're coming out from that or or sometimes people want to practice under their deception things that aren't biblical and and they have preferences and so they start a denomination but it's it's formed out of a deception that they're living with. And, and, and this, this can happen. I think if you went down through the decades and the centuries of Christianity, you could probably find some examples. One might be King Henry VIII. So consider this. Henry is best known for his six marriages and in particular his efforts to have his first marriage to Catherine of Aragon annulled. His disagreement with the Pope on the question of such an annulment led Henry to initiate the English Reformation, separating the Church of England from papal authority and appointing himself the supreme head of the Church of England. So that might be an example of a new launch because someone was not given permission or not granted something that was kind of really a form of deception it wasn't really right so if you think of the protestant reformation maybe that would go more the other way where there were there was this formation of a new denomination under martin luther in part because of 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 a discovery of of grace in in the text of Rome, the book of romans but also maybe because of some of the the abuses or 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 some of the deception that was blanketing the Catholic Church at that time. And that's not a critique on the old Catholic Church. It's the abuse of these indulgences and other things. So so this is an example of a new denomination forming because they feel that there is some deception in the existent one. And we're coming out from among them and starting something new. So they're really that God used that as a great you know, blessing in many different ways. So... So the life truth would be sometimes deception leads to denominational developments as well. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, for a time is coming when people will no longer listen to sound and wholesome teaching. They will follow their own desires and look for teachers who tell them whatever their itching ears want to hear. They will reject the truth and chase, chase after myths. And sometimes denominations are formed out of that because they say, we don't want we, we to be deceived like that. So we're moving on. So you can see that it's a pretty complicated subject it's a great question why are there so many denominations i think at a macro level at thirty-five thousand feet i think these five reasons cover an awful lot of real estate and you might have some of your own reasons that you could have added to this message but for sake of time we can only look at so many but i just want to say as i said in the first service too regardless of all of this and the imperfect movements of the christian church some of the abuses, some of the fraudulent behavior, some of the deception, some of the poor biblical interpretation and that likely still goes on today. You know, God is ultimately moving his church forward. He's reconciling people to himself through Christ. He always has and he always will work through imperfections, those things that are incomplete. That doesn't mean we shouldn't work at getting better and, and study things more and, and all of these things, but... I think we can relax and know that God is in control. God is working. And there are some sensible reasons why there are many denominations. And it doesn't necessarily make Christianity weird or discredit the whole thing or make God confused. I don't think that's fair. That's not fair. I think I've just presented some rational reasons why this happens so let's bow in prayer as we close our eyes for a moment and open up our hearts um i want to say just before we pray that again i want to thank you for the question whoever submitted it it's a good question hopefully some of those thoughts help a little bit and let's turn to god in prayer now father thank you for the insights of your word and we thank you for the examples of the first century church and how it was imperfect there were doctrinal challenges and fights and vehement arguments and imperfections and we see down through history how there's there's the formation of these different doctrines but ultimately god your your primary concern is to see people forgiven of their sin to see people come into a relationship with you through christ and to ultimately become more like christ as we study scripture the best we can as we're empowered by your spirit so may weka be a reflection of that as we launch out and may this church remain unified together working and serving in your kingdom. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Please stand together if you would. Uh, thank you so much for coming. Uh, if you are new here, we've got a guest lounge just down by the cafe. You can stop in there and have a visit with a volunteer. And don't forget to uh, swing by if you want to say a word to the Candon Gammas in the cafe as well. God bless you. Have a wonderful day as you go. Thanks for listening to our podcast. You can watch us live every Sunday at 11 a.m. Mountain through our Facebook page or by visiting us at weka.com. We invite you to be part of our online community by visiting any of the links in the showliner. If you're in the Edmonton, Alberta area, visit us at our West Edmonton campus on 199th Street or pop in for a coffee at the Weka Chapel located in the West Edmonton Mall.